Hey, what's up, guys? It's Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor back again with another sermon review. Today, we are going to be looking at Mark Driscoll from the Trinity Church in Arizona. Uh, most of you probably would have heard that name, um, either associated with uh, good things or associated with bad things. And today, we're going to take a look at one of his sermons uh, that was uploaded on September 20th of this year uh, to Real Faith by Mark Driscoll. Uh, that's where you're going to be able to access it. If you want to watch this whole sermon without my commentary, the link will be in the description below as always. And welcome if you're new and you're wondering what in the world is the sermon review. Well, each week I sit down and we look at a variety of different pastors and their sermons. And we say, okay, well, let's look at the totality of the sermon. Um, what are the red flags? What are the good things? Do they use context? Do they talk about the historical things that are happening during the time and how they would, you know, how they affected the writing of this letter and you know, the word usage and uh, the, all of the things that the author was trying to, commute to communicate to the, the audience that they were writing to initially. And then when we look at all that information and, and really say, okay, well, what is, what, what's the presentation being given here, whether it be narrative or uh, helpful, or maybe they're, they're trying to, you know, author is perhaps scolding them. Like when we look at that text, how does that now apply to us as modern day believers? Um, and each week we do this. We look at all of those aspects and say, okay, is this, is this sermon good or is it bad? And the purpose behind that is to hopefully give you tools to discern, you know, what a good sermon and a bad sermon are based on uh, if they're exegeting the text correctly, if they're, uh, you know, reading into the text or reading the information out of the text in order to help uh, the body of believers that they're presenting the sermon to. The reason we do this is because you have, and I have, access to an unlimited amount of sermons because of the technology of today. Day. I mean, we have the internet. That's how you're viewing this right now or listening to this right now. And we can listen to anyone. The question is, uh, do we have the tools to discern whether it's a good message or a bad message? And if the scriptures are being adequately taught through that message. So today we are going to look at Mark Driscoll. Like I said before, uh, this particular sermon comes from a series that they did called Faith Works. It's a study uh, in the book of James. And what I want to do is is kind of twofold here. This is a little bit different of a sermon review than I, I typically would have done. Uh, the reason being is that Mark Driscoll is a pretty polarizing figure. Um, so I want to look at his sermon that he gives outside of the fact that like this is Mark Driscoll. I, we want to look at the sermon and say what is the content of this sermon, and then uh, kind of add an extra aspect to this sermon review that we normally wouldn't do. Um, and that's to say, okay, well, we, we, we hear the sermon and we're looking at the sermon, but we also know a little bit more about this individual than we would know about many of the pastors we've looked at in the past. And so knowing a little bit about Mark Driscoll, as far as all of the publicity that has been done around him, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, all of the interviews, everything that happened to Mars Hill church back in the day, um, looking at the sermon now and saying, okay, well, when we have those two things together, what does this mean then? Um, and honestly, this is a sort of a personal project for me because as I've stated kind of uh, online before, whether you've seen those posts or read those posts, uh, Mark Driscoll is pretty pivotal uh, in, in my growth as a believer in the early, in my early college days, um, which are long past gone. We're talking 16 years ago, um, but he was pretty pivotal in uh, me, me understanding the gospel and, and coming to, to faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, with that being said, um, like, all right, let's look at this not only from um, you know, the way we normally would look at a sermon review as far as just looking at it. And then also just from more of a personal aspect in, in my regard and say, well, what does this all mean then now that we're hearing someone um, that we, we have a lot of information on 
preaching a sermon at a church. So um, as always, let's jump right in and we're going to work through as much as we can in this hour looking at this sermon and kind of breaking it down saying, hey, what are the good things here? What are the bad things? And then what do we do with it? So let's go. You are brand new. We're so glad to have you. And we're in a great book of the Bible called James. It's written by G. We got one guy excited. That's good. It's a start. May it continue. All right. All right. All right. So as we're jumping into James, it's Jesus' little brother. And they grew up in a blue collar family. So I like to say that in the New Testament, James is the blue collar scholar. Their dad was a carpenter, construction worker, like my dad. They grew up working with their dad, putting their boots on in the morning, grabbing their tools, going to do carpentering, construction. These are not guys who were raised in the institution. Instead, they were raised by a blue collar dad who went to work every day. And so what James is talking about is really practical, and it's about how to take your faith and put it to work in your life. And so our theme is faith works. So we're going to be in James chapter one, and we looked at it last week, the theme for the book, the hook for the book, James chapter one, verses two and three, count it all joy. My brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, you know that your testing produces steadfastness. So here's what he says. Life has trials. There are hard seasons, difficulties, obstacles, and those are opportunities for you and I to seek joy. You're going to go through trial. The question is, will joy come into you to get you through your trial? If you can find joy in your trial, you'll have steadfastness through your trial. This week, the theme continues in chapter one, verse 14. He says, regarding the temptation. So there's a specific kind of trial that he's referring to, and that's a temptation to sin against God. He says, uh, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. What he says is when there's trials out there, there's more temptation in here. And I, I wanna just pivot for a moment. I've been doing some work in the brain Okay, so this is kind of the end of his introduction. He's going to be going into more of, um, well, we'll see it here in a minute. So the introduction, and this again, this is, this sermon is going to be a little bit different just simply because I, I, I watched a lot of Mark Driscoll back in the day, all right? Like a lot. Um, now, I don't remember, remember all of that, clearly. It's been a while, but I think I remember bits and pieces of it. Um, so one, this seems a little bit different than the old Mark Driscoll sermons in regards to there's not a lot of context here. There's not a lot of, um, you know, hey, this was the date that James is written. Hey, this is the context that James was writing. James was writing to. Hey, these were the people that James was writing to. This was what was happening to them. Like all of that is non-existent in in what Mark just opened with. I mean, basically, he personalized it right out of the gate. Um, a, a base, just not mentioning, maybe ignoring. Uh, all of the things as far as date, who James writing to, what's going on with them, all of the contextual things that we would, you would hope to see at the beginning of a sermon. And this is what you're looking at, uh, totally outside of Mark Driscoll, but just in, in a sermon, like there was an original audience that this was written to. They were going through real things. There was a reason that this was written to them. And not that you necessarily have to be in a historical scholar or, uh, you know, know all the dates of when all the books were written and all of that. But there is a lens in which knowing those things actually helps you understand the, the scriptures more. It helps you understand um, and process through 
you know, not only what was happening to them, but the applicability of what that means for us as modern day believers, knowing, for example, that James was written to primarily Jewish Christians that were experiencing persecution, not only from, from Rome, but also from the synagogue, uh, because they were, they, they now follow Jesus. So not only you, you're having cultural pressures on you because you follow Jesus, but now you also have pressure from the people you used to go to synagogue with, because now you claim Christ and now you can't associate with him. You can't go to synagogue anymore. Like there's a whole part of your life that is cut off now because you're following Jesus. Um, and knowing just that little bit actually helps us understand what James is saying as far as when trials and temptations come your way. Um, there's all of these things that like are little bits that are incredibly helpful that whenever we do open a book like James and it's preached, those are helpful things to know. Um, now again, maybe Mark particularly he maybe he covered all that in his first sermon covering James um, clearly we didn't watch that we're just watching this one um, but if, if he if he did that's great but what if we weren't there like week one like you don't have to recap everything but at least give us the general gist of it uh, now like I said before when I paused this he's going to shift now out of his introduction and he's going to move into um Something that we see a lot, but also I remember being part of like Driscoll sermons back in the day where there's a lot of things that are added as far as like um, uh, sociology or psychology or different different sciences in which uh, Mark um, says that he studied. And then he's now applying those things that he studied to what we see in scripture and kind of tying those things together. Um, let's see what he says. Let's see what he does. And then we'll, we'll kind of stop and kind of process what that means um, as far as the applicability of that. Sciences and what they are finding actually correlates with what the Bible teaches, which makes sense. God made us. He hardwired us. He created us. He instructs us. And then 2000 years later, the scientists catch up. And so we appreciate them finally agreeing with God. And so what the brain scientists have found is that when there is increased trial out there, pressure, pains, problems, difficulties, troubles, hardships, that ultimately what happens inside of you determines the kind of life you live, the kind of decisions you make. And so when there's a trial out there, what begins to happen, it triggers anxiety in the mind. All of a sudden now you're dealing with the trial and your brain is trying to process the information and then what that does, that increases the temptation in your body. So the trial around you, it triggers anxiety in the mind, which can trigger a lot of temptation in the body to make bad decisions under distress and duress. Now, the problem is um, we live in a time when we have perhaps an unprecedented complex number of trials that people are going through. Global, national, regional, local, personal, relational, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional. You just start to get the categories. You just kind of feel your brain just processing all that data and just thinking of your own trials and it can increase your anxiety. So he's shifting. Just I just want to show you kind of the sermon build idea here. I'm, if you didn't catch it, which I mean, it was pretty clear, but if not, like just kind of viewing it. So he sets it up and say, hey, James is talking in this particular text about being steadfast in trials and temptations. Um, then he shifts into, hey, scientists have said that this is how our brain reacts whenever we have trials and temptations and how that affects us as far as anxiety. And then he moves directly into uh, us now saying, hey, these are all the things that we're going through now as far as regionally, locally, personally, and all of this builds into anxiety. So 
He's opening with this is what James says, moves into this is how, you know, uh, you know, troubles and temptations affect us. And he goes, here are some examples of how even currently now with us, these anxieties and stresses are around us. So if anxieties and stresses are around us, then we will then react as psychologists have said, he says. And then that's where James becomes applicable. So just so you kind of see, this is how he's building it, because basically he's hooking the audience into, hey, James is saying this is how we will react to trials and temptations that should help us like we should be steadfast in them and basically selling the point that like you have them now like there's trials and temptations now that are going to be tempting you are you going to be steadfast or not kind of setting this whole thing up uh the clinical definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry or nervousness or unease about one of two things an imminent event that is in the process of happening or a future event that you anticipate is coming and you're dealing with both of those trials right now. Some of you have got major decisions right now. Some of you, if you, if you make a certain medical decision, you could lose your job, you could lose your career. You're trying to figure out what to do with your life, with your finances. You're trying to figure out what God's plan for you is in this immediate moment. You're reading James 1, it says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it, and God will give it to you. And you're like, that's what I need. I've got a decision to make right now. I don't know what the decision is right or wrong, good or bad, wise or foolish. And then you look at the future. You realize, oh my gosh, there's more problems. How many of you looking at the future? You're not real hopeful. Okay, if you're hopeful, we're gonna drug test you. You're not sober. Okay, like you're not, you're not dealing with reality. You're not processing the data. So that's interesting. Okay, I just, that, that line there was very interesting the first two times I listened to it. Um, because he sets this up where it's, okay, there will be trials and temptations. Trials and temptations are happening now. If you're hopeful in these things, you need to be drug tested. Um, which, I mean, again, this is Mark Driscoll's type of kind of type of preaching. And again, not even Mark Driscoll. This is a lot of people's types of preaching in regards to, um, it's a mix of preaching slash information giving slash comedy. Like they're, they're all tied together. I mean, again, what I mean by comedy is like his inflections. He's deliberate in how he, like the speed in which he says things and the way he inflects his voice during certain times. For example, when he mentioned uh, all the things happening and he's like, all those categories make you go, <gasps> right? Like he, he's, he knows how to communicate uh, very similar to verdict in regards to like knowing your audience, knowing the pauses, knowing the speed, like again, not that that's necessarily planned out, but it's very person like it's, it's within their personality to be a good communicator. Now, when he gets to the point though, and he says, if you're hopeful now, you need to be drug tested. I think that really, I don't know. I, I don't think that that it actually counteracts what James is trying to tell the people that he's writing to that you'll have like these times of trouble produce steadfastness um, in the, in the sense that like you can, as a believer going through tiles, still have joy. Like you can, you are steadfast looking forward to, to Jesus. I mean, he, your hope, your foundation for everything. So even when everything is, you know, uh, kind of upended and everything's happening, like you can still have joy in the fact that like this isn't all there is. Um, I forget the psalm it was. It was actually mentioned in the last sermon review, but it's like when the nations rage and the kingdoms roar and like the mountains fall apart. I know my God is still my God. Like, so even though all of these things are falling apart, like I have security in the knowledge that the Lord is the Lord. So I think that line's a little, 
I don't think it was necessarily maybe meant to convey the point that like, oh, well, you shouldn't have hope right now. I mean, maybe it did again, because the whole sermon's on anxiety and troubles and everything. But the idea that like to, to put down the fact that somebody could possibly have joy and hope going on, even in these times, I think it's kind of counteractive to what James is saying. But anyway, let's keep going. Remember last year we had the 14 days to flatten the curve. You're like, that seems like a while ago. And some people were, wait, well, you know what? We'll just wait. Now the world will get better. We'll have election. That'll fix it. Little spoiler alert. It didn't. Okay. So we still got a lot of complex things that are happening and people are processing both in the present and in the future. You have anxiety for decisions you need to make today and you're trying to prepare for what's gonna happen tomorrow. Now, the counselors tell us that there are four first categories that cause anxiety. These are the trials that can cause the greatest anxiety in the brain, are you ready? Health, safety, politics, and relationships. Has anyone noticed that perhaps we had some health and safety issues in the recent history of planet Earth? that were exacerbated by some political conflicts that had some consequences for our relationships. The, the clinicians will tell you that the four categories of trial that cause the greatest anxiety in the brain and bring the greatest stress and temptation to the body have been literally a vice that has been pressing on every human being for more than one year. So that's the world that we live in. All right, so we'll close in prayer, send you home. Good luck with that. Now you know you got some stuff to deal with. Is there any hope? No, no, you're on your own. No, there is hope. That's where God's timeless word is timely and God knows how he has hardwired and created you. And so his word specifically speaks to you because what God wants to do is have you change your mind, create new patterns, new neural pathways so that you get out of whatever loop you have been in where there is a trial, there is anxiety, and then bad decisions are made that cause more pain in your life. So I want to point out that that was good. I really, that I think was a very helpful way to transition into the word, right? So if we're looking at sermon building, opens with James talking about trials and being steadfast, covering a little bit of what he covered last time, goes right into, hey, this is what brain scientists say about anxiety and trouble that comes our way. Hey, this is how we react to it. We're going through it right now. Hey, this is all the trouble in the world. Is there any hope? Yeah, there is hope. We, we have scripture to, to point us toward this Jesus that is hope. Um, and then he does, he says something that some people might find problematic, but the idea that, uh, I, I think it's scriptural, uh, the idea that, you know, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, like our, our brains are reprogrammed. Like there are certain sin loops that we get in. I think that's the terminology he used. Um, basically habitual habits in which stresses trigger things that then uh, we, we run to sin instead of run to Christ. I've had, I can't tell you how many conversations on that exact subject uh, in which um, people just don't, they can't identify the things that, that trigger them running back to sin. And almost all the time it's stress or it's something that happens in their life that then that sends them right back. It's a trouble or an anxiety that then sends them running back to a coping mechanism, which happens to be some sort of sin instead of running to Jesus. So all of what he said there was really, really good in the sense that there are, there are things that happen to us that are really disrupting to our lives, but there is hope to be found in Christ because Christ changes us into new people, so. 
And so what happens when there are trials around us and anxiety in the brain, the brain gets an insatiable desire for more data and information. I just need to know more so that I can control more. So people are wanting information so that they can prepare for what is happening and then they can make a plan to keep them safe and have control over the future. We live in a day when the amount of information on planet Earth is doubling. Here's the problem. Trial happens, you're trying to get all the information. You can't get it all, there's too much information. In addition, the information keeps changing. True or false, <laughs> right? You're like, well, they said this and now they said that. I followed the science and they're drunk driving. I don't know, I don't know where, I don't know where we're going. <sighs> now, this is one thing that you're gonna see throughout the sermon here. Um, and I'll make some more comments about this near toward the end. But what you're gonna see is that um, Driscoll has a, a, cl a clear leaning in which where he, you know, he le leans toward a particular side of more of the, I'll just say it, the political scale. Like you can tell he has a leaning, which is, which is fine. Everyone has a leaning one side, one way or the other. That's just, that's just the truth of it. There's very few people that are in the middle. And even if they are, there's, they're going to pick pieces from either side. Um, what you're going to see in the sermon though, is that, um, and this is something I, I think that us as pastors should stay away from as much as possible is like really kind of picking a side in regards to um, knowing that your congregation is a very diverse congregation. <clears throat> speaking Christ to that and speaking the gospel to that, I think is far more helpful than like um, kind of playing to one side. I don't, we don't see in um, the epistles or any of the writings from the apostles um sort of this sort of, I don't know if you want to call it pandering or not, but we don't, we don't see that in, in, in the epistles or the writings of the apostles. That's just not something that's there. Their constant goal is uh, salvation, sanctification, and, and pointing people toward Jesus. Um, we don't see one way or the other anything else. And here in the sermon, what we will see a number of times, um, sometimes more overtly, sometimes more just kind of just built into it is this idea. So let's, let's look at it and see what he says. I shouldn't have said that, and it'll happen again in a minute. So, in addition, the problem with trying to collect all the information and figure out, okay, what is happening in the world so that I can make a plan, so I can be in control, so I can be safe, and I can have a good future, is not only is there too much information, the information keeps changing, we are scared that we're going to miss some of the information, so we set alerts. We set alerts for certain media, social media platforms. You've got your phone, and it rings, it dings, it, it buzzes, and you're, you just, you're on all the time. You're like, I don't want to miss any information because the information may be important information, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a trial or I have a difficulty, and I need to get the information so that I can process it, so that I can make a plan. Now we're all stressed and freaked out. Now our phone is our enemy, and you can't stop looking at it, and you're fearful of what you may miss. And then the problem becomes as well with more information. The more information you get, the more anxiety you have in your mind because the more problems you realize. You're like, I didn't even know about these things and now they're crises and problems. And then the more I study, the more worried I get. And if you're an anxious personality, this has been a rough year for you. In addition, the problem is a lot of the information we get, it's fake news. It's just false. How many of you in this last year, your gods are like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about this. I'm sending it to my friends. They're sending it to me. We're now triggering one another. They call this a social contagion. Have you read this? No. Oh my gosh, you got to read this. And now everybody's living in a Scooby-Doo episode and totally freaked out. And uh, oh my gosh. And then you realize that's oh, not true. 
Statistically, they've shown that fake news and misinformation travels six times faster than the truth because it triggers anxiety and that causes people to make short-sighted emotional decisions. There was an old preacher once said that, that a lie can get around the world before the truth can get its shoes on. Okay, so this is the world we live in. Okay, so let me just, let me just recap. Okay, let's see if we're all together here. Are there trials in your life right now? Okay, so he's catching everybody up here, but let's like look at the last little bit, just from, just from the, the time I paused last until now. Um, what you're going to notice is um, there's a lot of, a lot of things in this sermon that have, they have loose connections to what we're talking about here in James. But in general, it's just, it's information piles on top of information piles to reiterate the same point of trouble and anxiety um, that James has already kind of talked about and touched on. Um, it's not that they're not helpful because you get a little bit of information from them, but there's just so much there that it actually sort of distracts from um, the text that we're actually looking at and actually working through it. Now, again, some people, this could be concerned methodology in regards to some people don't work through the text line by line or section by section. Um, they, they state a text and then they just kind of go off on a tangent based upon that text. I don't know if that's incredibly helpful because now it's a lot of your opinion or a lot of information and we're not anchored in the scripture, which I think would be the primary purpose of why we would be there on Sunday morning, to be anchored in the scripture and to know that it is the truth and it is the foundation for all the things that we do. Now, again, not that this is bad, but I think so much of this information just can get really distracting. And again, Driscoll's not the only person that does this. There's a lot of pastors that um, it's something actually as pastors we struggle with is saying, okay, how much of all of this studying that I've done do I give you and how much do I hold back so that, again, your, your concentration isn't so much on all of this information, but your concentration relies you know, on the scripture. And it is a battle. To, to be frank, as far as uh, as pastors that prepare sermons, how much to give the congregation and how much not to. What's useful, what's not, what do I need to cut? Um, but when there's so much there, it really distracts from what's happening in the sermon. Again, in my opinion, everybody's different. But when I sit here and I listen to all that, it really comes across, and we'll talk about this um, near the end of the sermon here, or the end of this particular part of the sermon review. Um it comes across more like a TED talk with like a line of Bible running through it. You know what I'm saying? So like TED talks are informational. They're, um, you're, they're conveying a large amount of information on a topic with different information done in. The study that whoever's giving the TED talk is now presenting all that basically to us with a little bit of personal anecdotes and stories that are built into the talk. Essentially, that's what this can easily become if a pastor is not careful. Like we get bombarded for, by information with a little bit of scripture kind of weaving through there. Um, and we want to be careful that that's not what happens, right? We want to, uh, as pastors, we want to be really good communicators, clearly. Um, but we don't want to just be fancy TED talkers that sprinkle some scripture in there. Um, the scripture should be the key, the foundation, the anchor, everything that it goes back to. Instead of leaving the church and saying, hey, Mark had a lot of really good points today. It should be, hey, that's like, I'm encouraged. I'm uplifted. I'm convicted uh, by the scripture that we read today. Um, but anyway, so he's going to recap here for the congregation, everything he's talked about up to this point. 
Okay, is your brain having anxiety trying to process all the data to figure out what to do? Okay, are any of you seeing this manifest physically? <laughs> Nobody said yes, so I, somehow we got all the liars to join our church, okay? So, uh, so is it showing itself physically? Well, here's a little punch list of what to look for. Um, edginess, grumpiness, restlessness. If your spouse is doing this, it's you, it's you okay? <laughs> Irritability, fear, just general unwellness, muscle aches, headaches, trouble sleeping. And, and so what happens is you wake up in the morning, you turn on your phone, you get bad information, you, you've got your own trials. You look at your schedule, you look at people, you're in personal relationship. Okay, what are the trials for the day? This is like you turn the stove on. You're the tea kettle sitting on the stove. Now it's warming up. Throughout the course of the day, you get more trials, you get more information, creates more anxiety. By nighttime, by bedtime, you are the boiling tea kettle. You're like, I can't, I can't get, I, I'm overwhelmed, I'm, I'm exhausted, I can't handle anymore, it's been a full day. And so what happens then is you're stuck on and you can't turn off. During the course of the day to control the reaction of your body, you're trying to stay awake and alert. So you're eating junk food, you're eating fast food, you're eating carbohydrates, things that can convert it into sugar. And then nighttime comes and you're so stressed and your body's so awake, now you need alcohol. Now you need sleeping pills. Now you need some sort of comfort because what your body is saying is, we can't handle anymore. The trials out there, the anxiety in here is costing us so much physically. We want comfort, we want relief, we want rest, we want diversion, we want a break. Now, I know not you, because you love the Lord and you're filled with the spirit and you just read the Bible and pray in tongues until you fall asleep. But for other people that have bad habits, those people, <laughs> they'll be at the next service. So pray for them. So, um, but for you people, just think of others that you know. What are some of the things that we do when there's trials out there, there's anxiety in here, and then physically our body wants a break and comfort? What are the things that we tend to give our body? Food. Now don't raise your hand, I wouldn't want you to exercise. But how many of you put on weight in the last year because you were just stuck at home? You're like, I'm just gonna order more food and, uh, and put on something that has an elastic waistband. And so, and just whatever happens, happens. Okay, what else, what else do we use to comfort ourselves? Sex, Sex one honest person, that's good. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and. So again, just to reiterate the point, right? Not that James isn't speaking of trials and temptations in this maybe, you know, this particular way, but we wouldn't know that because Driscoll hasn't, um, he hasn't covered the context, at least in this service, he hasn't covered the context of the people James is writing to, their trials, their situations, their pressures, how they've been steadfast in them. None of that's, none of that was covered at the beginning. Um, and basically what we've had, and we're only 15 minutes into the actual sermon, granted, um, but uh, which could be considered the introduction, but even just this far in, it's basically been a TED talk about how stresses happen, what 
clinical scientists say happens to us whenever stress does affect us. The reality that stress is a thing that we've all experienced uh, in every category of our lives over the last year or two years and uh, how we now cope with those sorts of things uh, as they happen to us. Um, so it's not necessarily been an incredibly biblically edifying sermon so far in as much as it's been really more of a, hey, this is how your brain works and this is how you respond when your body does things. Um, so two things to that. One, I think partially this is why um, some people really not only like Driscoll in the past and his preaching style, but still would like him now. It's very, it's informational. It's relatable. It's, it's, it connects to your life right now, right? Um, which could be very appealing depending on where you're at in your Christian walk. Like that can be appealing to be like, oh no, he understands what I'm going through, um, which transparency wise, I think that's why I really connected to Driscoll back in the Mars Hill days. Um, and he still has that since now. Um, the second thing I want to have an observation of is not that this isn't Driscoll's lane um, in regards to like all of this information. Information is not like sectored off into, well, you can't talk about it unless you have this degree. But certain people are going to use things that you say against you if you don't cite studies, if you don't say this is where it came from. Like there will be people, and I'm sure there's been people that have maybe been watching the sermon review right now that have been like, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's a pastor and he's not a doctor, so I don't know why he's talking about these things. Like, that's always going to happen, which is why, again, I think if you are going to, if you do go this route, if a pastor is going to kind of in, in implore this sort of method in which to convey information, it would be very helpful to have studies, to have, you know, resources that people can go to, especially in in the day and age we live, that people automatically like disregard what you say if you don't have, you know, if you're not pointing to something they can actually look up, even though they'll never look it up themselves most of the time. But at least you have it and it's accessible. Um, so just two observations there. We're going to keep letting him go. We're going to do this whole hour sermon review. Um, part one of kind of working through here, but this is this, I just want to warn you, like there's a lot of this in it, like a lot of information dump, um, and a, not a, not a ton of connection to the scripture that he's talking about. And or pornography. What else do we do or use alcohol addiction? This can be, um, legalized drugs. This can be prescription drugs. This can be illegal drugs. We Netflix binge watch. We're surfing through social media. We're playing video games. We call this an American. <laughs> and what it is, the trial out there creates the anxiety in here. The body is overtaxed and now it's making bad decisions because as there's more trial out there, more anxiety in here, there's more temptation in here. So he's connecting the trial out there with the temptation in here. And what he's going to do, he's going to speak to our mind and he's going to want to rehardwire it so that we deal with information differently and we are less susceptible to our trials. Now, what he's going to tell us today is when there's more trials out there, there's more anxiety in here, there's more temptation in here to soothe ourselves or to seek some sort of satisfaction in our stuff and our sin. Those are the two categories. So he's gonna start with our stuff. And here's the first concept, your joy ain't found in your stuff. And I know that's not really good grammar, but I went to public school. So James 1, nine through 11, let the lowly brother, the poor guy, the guy who rode the bus here, 
in his exaltation, let the rich, the guy who has the really nice car from the Barrett Jackson auction, who's frustrated because we made him park in the dirt lot. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, its beauty perishes, so will also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's comparing here two kinds of people that are going through a trial, the rich and the poor. Okay, so he's gonna go into this breakdown that you see on the slide. So it says, uh, godly poor, godly rich, un ungodly poor, ungodly rich. He's gonna break those down for us here in a moment. But before he does, like, let's really look at what, what's being said here in James. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, right? Saying that let, let, let the lowly brother, the poor brother, boast in his exaltation and let the rich in, uh, in his boast, essentially boast in his humiliation because like a flower uh, of the grass, he will pass away. The idea being here that if I'm poor, I'm boasting in the fact that uh, in, in my exaltation. And if I'm rich, I'm boasting in my humiliation because I'm going to go away either way. So the, f uh, and he says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers uh, withers the grass, its flowers fails, and its beauty perishes, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The idea here being that like, no matter which position you're in, that's not the definitive thing for you. If you're poor, you, you still boast in your exaltation in Jesus. If you're uh, rich, you boast in your humiliation found in Jesus. This idea that no matter what you have, you, you have Jesus if you're, if you're a believer. So that station doesn't matter. Um, you, no matter where you're at, you, you have Jesus. And that, that's your hope. That's your point. That's your purpose. Um, now, he is going to go into this really this incredibly long breakdown of these four categories that he's laid, that he's laid out here. Um, so just, just keep that, um, keep that in mind. Now, if you do want to break down, he does leave a little link down here that if you want to see the sermon notes, breaking all these categories down, you can go look at that, uh, realfaith.com forward slash notes, apparently. Um, but he, I just I want to warn you because I wasn't expecting this when I was like, he's going into a really long breakdown here of these four categories, which I don't, let me just say this from the get-go. I don't know if it's incredibly helpful for conveying the point that James is making. James isn't trying to talk about four different categories of godly poor, godly rich, ungodly poor, ungodly rich. This is not not James's point in these four verses. The point, again, is regardless, if you're a lowly brother, you boast in your exaltation. If you're a rich man or a rich woman, you boast in your humiliation. The idea is that you're... you're your, your, your reliance is on Jesus. That's the point. Again, going back to what I said before, um, the, the ideas that we see in the, in the epistles and in the writings of the apostles isn't a, an opinion-based, you know, leaning or pandering toward one side or the other. It's a, this is the gospel. This is Jesus. This is who you pursue. Um, and I'm not sure this breaking down. I mean, we'll listen to it and you tell me. I'm not sure this breaking down of these four categories is incredibly helpful to understanding this passage. I'm not even sure if, if James would have had these categories. Like, this, even if he had these categories, is this is what he's trying to communicate with this scripture here. That being said, all my caveats given, let's go. And how they will use their stuff to try to increase their satisfaction. So let me say this, uh, when it comes to rich and the poor, these categories are very subjective globally and historically. How many of you have traveled? 
and you thought you were poor until you went somewhere else, you're like, I'm doing good. If you go to the bathroom in your house, you're doing good. If you can heat your house without chopping down a tree and starting a fire in your house, you're doing good. If you can flip a switch to turn the lights on in your house, you're doing good. Historically and globally, the average American lives at a lifestyle that has never been previously possible. And we are in where? Scottsdale. If you're having a bad day in Scottsdale, you're still having a good day. <laughs> Go to Detroit. I mean, and then catch a flight to Haiti or to Afghanistan. You're having a good day. So the rich and the poor are, they are sliding scales and we need to keep reality in perspective. In addition, what happens when it comes to trying to find satisfaction or joy or comfort or relief in our stuff, the way Christians deal with this is one of two polarities. There's the prosperity and the poverty people. The prosperity people think the more stuff I have, the more joy I'll have, the better my life will be. So I'm going to have some weird concept that God is a vending machine and that faith hits the button and gives me the stuff that I want, prosperity theology. On the other side, the poverty theology people say, you know what, your joy is not found in more stuff, but less stuff. So give all your stuff away. Go, go tiny house nation, uh, spark joy, have a yard sale. And what is crazy is people will just change teams. So the prosperity guys, like I bought a ton of junk and it's not making me happy, so I'm going to sell it. And then, and then the poverty theology guys like, yeah, I, I, it's not working. So I'm gonna go to your garage sale and I'm gonna buy all the stuff that you got rid of. And all we're doing is making the same mistake, thinking that our joy is tied to our stuff. Because here's the big idea. You don't just have things, things have you. And right now what's happening is as people are experiencing more trials, they are spending more money to get more. Okay, so two things. One, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just, the circles I run in, I've just never heard of this. But if you've heard of like the poverty theology in this regard that like less stuff makes you more godly. Now, now again, I understand like as far as there are certain sects of like monks and uh, like, well, that's all I've ever heard it in. It's like monks or those people that like go off purposefully, sell all their things and go live out in the wilderness. But I don't know of how popular that actually is now. It probably There were definitely times in history that you can read about where that was the predominant idea, right? The less stuff I have, the more I'm away from society and culture, that makes me more godly. Like that's, that's a thing that definitely happened. I just haven't heard of a lot of it now. So if you have, go ahead and again, let me know because I just, I've never, I haven't heard of that recently, basically within modern times. Um, I think tiny house nation having yard sales is a far cry from poverty theology, but that's just my opinion. Now, um, the more important note here, aside from all of that is this idea that, um, like he's going to go now into a whole talk on money again, not the, not necessarily that anything he says here isn't helpful. Like all of the things he said before, Assuming that, again, you can go back and find the sources and you, you believe what he's saying, which I don't, everything he said up to this point, I don't, I mean, I can trust that you can probably find somewhere as far as the study or an article written about it. Um, but now he's going to talk about money because you don't have money, money has you. All of this is very applicable in regards to greed, in regards to uh, how Christians understand money, in regards to all of that. But the question we have to ask here is if we're looking at James, is this James's point in the letter that he's writing to the people he's writing to? Because it's not that it's, I mean, it's great that it's helpful. That's good. 
uh, it's good information to have, but are we in our pursuit of making some really good points about how we handle money and all of that thing? Are we distracting from the actual passage that we're reading? Um, that, that's my fear here in all of this is that like, we're like, Oh, here's James. And we read it. And now like, let's do such a deep dive into the words that James says that it actually becomes something that James wasn't even talking about. And then we lose the whole point. Um, that's what I would be looking for. So we're going to let him go for uh, about five minutes here. And then, um, then we'll, we'll kind of see where we're at. Cause that'll be, they'll be really close here to closing out the sermon review for this week. Or stuff hoping that it increases their joy and it doesn't. And I'm not saying it's bad to go shopping. I'm not saying it's bad to spend money, but I'm saying that it in and of itself is not going to fix your trial, reduce your anxiety or transform your future. And what he says here is that wealth and beauty, and they often go together, that wealth and beauty fade. And I just, what he says is, hypothetically imagine, just conceive of a desert environment. Okay, so I know, I know this is hard. So just, just think about a place that has grass growing and flowers blooming until June, July, and August come. I call them the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist. They unleash hell on the valley. That's what they do. And so what happens here when the heat comes, your grass withers, your flowers die, okay? It's so bad here. When we first moved here, one of my daughters, she wanted to see grass so bad that she took synthetic grass AstroTurf and put it on the dash of her car and it melted. <laughs> Not only does the grass wither and the flowers fail, the synthetic grass melts. What he's saying is this, it doesn't matter how beautiful someone or something is, eventually it fades away. You can't take your wealth with you to heaven and eventually, no matter how beautiful you are, and you are a lovely people, gravity wins every time. <laughs> you wake up one day, you're like, it's going south. <laughs> I'll go, I'll pay someone to prop it up, but it's still going south, okay? <laughs> the guys thought that was funny. The ladies were like, it's not funny. That's offensive what that is. Yeah. Do we have another guy? I want to try the other guy. That was all you got. Okay. And so in addition, what happens is in our day, social media exists for one reason, for you to covet someone else's stuff to then consume and to purchase something for yourself. This is what we do. And the reason we do this, the reason we choose shopping, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, video games, in the front of your brain, there's a dopamine center. And if you hit that button, it's a temporary relief and pleasure. Feels good. And then there's something we call buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse. But it, the, the reason why this is so powerful with your stuff is there was a day if you wanted something, you actually had to work for it. Right, so let's say you wanted a house. You're like, well, we gotta go find land. We gotta chop down trees. We gotta turn it into wood. We got da 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 da. Now you just go online. You're like, you're like, I could tour a house from my house. It used to be if you wanted something, you would have to, okay, let's say you live out in a small rural town. You're like, I really want some shoes. 
So I, I need to, first of all, I either need to walk into town or I need to get a horse. And then I need to get on the horse and now I need to go into town. And if it rains, I'm gonna be soaking wet because I don't have a roof on me or the horse and there's no heat or air conditioning. So it's probably gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna be a dirt dusty road. And then when I get into town, I go into the store and I tell them I want some shoes. They measure my feet and then some guy's gonna make the shoes, but I gotta come back in a month or two or three and I gotta wait for the shoes. And then I gotta get back on the horse or walk back to the, the, the you know, the, the homestead, and then I got to come back in a few, that's a lot. Now you're just like, Siri, give me shoes. Ding, she's already got your credit card. And then Amazon Prime sends a drone and drops it over your house. You're like, yay. <laughs> so what happens is we're making instantaneous decisions in our trials, thinking that purchasing things will bring us relief. And what this leads to is what the sociologists call conspicuous consumption. And that is you buy things, not because you need them or you even like them, but because other people are impressed by them. So let's talk about women's shoes. Okay, so we'll, we'll pause that here just to kind of sum up the last point, right? So what we're seeing is again, I, I, I hate to be a broken record here, but it's just story after story, information after information, belaboring, I, it's it's the definition of uh, what was that beating a dead horse right you're just like you're just the same thing over and over and over again and it's not resulting in anything um there's a lot of information here and i think he's i don't know what he what his thought process is but it seems like the point of what he's trying to do is really 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 unpack the point of, of how we as people deal with things. It almost seems, um, and I've seen this in a few other sermon interviews I've done, though I haven't mentioned it in those, but it seems like some of these pastors, you know, they, they go to a, a psychologist and they talk through their issues and then they pick up uh, this terminology that the psychologist tells them and they go home and they look it up on the internet for a while, maybe read a couple books and they're really impressed by it and then they kind of work it into their sermons, right? Uh, and um, they do so with this probably this really good idea that like I want to pass this information on to the people that I'm speaking to as I tell them also about you know biblical truths the question is like is this helpful this is what I want to get back to over and over again it's not that and we've seen this I can't tell you how many sermon reviews that I've said this in it's not that the information being conveyed is necessarily bad the information is helpful in many regards but i think often what we do is we we convolute good information with biblical truth so we open up on a number of different sermons not just with this sermon but a number of different sermons with like here are the verses and then we have a lot of points that are made that are loosely tied to that verse but don't necessarily communicate what the verse or the section of verses or the chapter is actually trying to talk about and actually trying to convey, uh, not only to its original audience, but even the application to what we would, we, the applicability to us, it's just not there. It's a lot of information that may be helpful, may be enlightening, and maybe we've learned something, but we haven't learned it from the Bible. So one of the things we really need to look at is what is the information we're getting? So if we're sitting down, and this is why I would encourage you guys to take notes during sermons, just noting down, okay, this is where we mentioned this point. This is what they said about this point. This is the terminology they used. And then the question of how does this connect to the scriptures that we're reading, right? That's the important thing. 
does this connect to scripture one at all and two the particular scripture that we're reading because i can't emphasize it enough and i know there's people that are that disagree with me on this but at the end of the day i don't care what the pastor said if it doesn't have something to do with the scriptures and being anchored in the word of god i when i preach don't want people to be so impressed by what I say or my one-liners or even my presentation, I don't, I do not want them to care about that. Now, is it helpful if it's easy to listen to, if it's communicated well, if it's, if it's succinct and clear, those things are important, but I don't want them to be like, oh, wow, that was a really good point unless it connects to scripture. That's why I'm preaching to point you to Jesus, to open the word of God, to draw out the truth there, to show how it was applicable to the original audience and how even through time, God's word is still alive. It still speaks to us. That's what a pastor's concern should be. Do I want to pass on helpful information? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, if it connects to the scriptures that we're looking at, but if it doesn't, like, I seem like I'm taking up, I'm taking up useful time on something that I could just tell you in a conversation somewhere. So this is what we've seen a lot of, right, through this entire sermon. So I, I want to give him five more minutes. That's going to get us really close to the end of this this portion of the sermon review, and then we'll kind of tie everything up uh, in preparation for next time. But um, let's give him five more minutes, see how he kind of sums this up. Um, if I remember this portion of the sermon right, um, some of you aren't going to like it. Um, some of you won't care, but I think it just goes on to to demonstrate the same thing that um, we've seen throughout the entire sermon. I'm not going to say anything. It's too dangerous. Some chick will take her heel and club me with it. I don't have, I don't want to take, so I'll just ask questions. Okay, ladies, we're going to do a little chat. Okay, so ladies, true or false, some women's shoes are very expensive. True. Okay, that was, that was, okay. Are some of the most expensive shoes the most uncomfortable shoes? Do you still buy them? <laughs> Feel like there's a grenade with a pin pulled and I gotta be very careful. Why do you buy them and wear them? They're cute. <laughs> Last night, some guy over here said fabulous. We talked to that guy. Okay, so <laughs> they're cute. They're fabulous. And when you wear them, you, and you don't wear them all the time because they're too, they're too uncomfortable. So what happens is you're like, oh my gosh, those are rare. Those are expensive. Those are uncomfortable. I will put those on. I will wear them out so that another woman looks at my feet and says, cute, fabulous. Okay. <laughs> The whole point is not that you're buying shoes, you're buying their attention. This is why we have social media, to get people to covet and make decisions when they're in a trial, to get that little quick dopamine hit, and they feel good until they get the bill and then they got credit card debt. And now all of a sudden they've got a new trial of debt in addition to the trial that they spent money trying to deal with. This is the world we live in. Just think, so on social media, there are words and there are images. People click on the images far more frequently than they do the words. And what we're trying to figure out is what do they have? 
Now we get to see, oh, look at their house. Oh my gosh, that's it. Oh, look at their car. Look at their vacation. Look at their kids. They're, they have bugger-free kids. Oh my gosh, you know. How do you do bugger-free kids with a white rug? You know, like that's a crazy house. Now all of a sudden, there are things we didn't even know about that we're covetous of. And we start spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. Okay. So that, that's where we're going to stop for this week. We're actually stopping at minute mark 23 minutes and 51 seconds. Again, I think I believe I, I believe I said this is the beginning of the sermon review. If I didn't, as always, the link for the full description uh, or the full sermon is going to be in the description below. But that's where we're going to stop today. 23 minutes, uh, 51 seconds. Uh, next week on part two of this sermon review, we'll pick up at that point. And we'll kind of keep going on. Uh, the wrap up from just this first half, though, that I want to cover is that I just want you to to see the similarity between this and a TED Talk. In fact, I would encourage you just to go type TED Talk on any subject, maybe on money or psychology or anything like that, uh, or anxiety. You're, you're going to hear a lot of the same points, but the purpose in that exercise would be is to listen to that TED Talk and say, well, how is this a whole lot different than what we just saw Mark do? Now, there is a bit of a uh, uh, you know, he, he uses James's words a little bit that we, we barely spent, let's be honest, we barely spent any time actually looking at James's words in the verses he's talked about, at least up to this point, 20 minutes into the sermon. Um, which for me, if I'm telling someone, Hey, this is what you should look for in a sermon. We're 20 minutes in the sermon and have not spent a ton of time in the text. That is a red flag to me. That's problematic because now almost all of this time that we've spent is based on what on what the pastor said. In this case, what what Marcus said. So, um, not again. I, I, again, I'm I'm the one beating the dead horse now. But um, just because the information is good doesn't mean it's helpful in regards to the scripture we're looking at. I think we could have spent a whole lot better time using 20 minutes digging into James, looking at the context, seeing what the people James was writing to were going through, how that would have affected their lives then. And then, yeah, we could shift into, hey, this is this is what was going on for them then. This is James' heart, heart, his heart for them in this moment as he sees this persecution and this trouble and this trial. But James has a hope and he wants to communicate that hope to them that even in all of this, this is actually producing in, this, in them something that could have not otherwise been produced in them, right? This hope, this steadfastness in Jesus, this clinging to him, like the, their ability to do that in the depths in which they're doing that that, that, that satisfaction and strength and anchor they have in Christ would not have been as strong as it was if not for these trials. They're building in them this steadfastness. So it's actually... All of these trials, though we, though we don't initially see them as gifts from God, are actually a gift uh, that he's using sin for his glory, right? He's using the evil things that man meant for evil and actually turning them into good things for his people. Because obviously the, the trials and situations they're going through aren't good. They're actually, in many instances, perpetrated to harm them, to um, to, to depress them, to like to, to, to encourage them to abandon Christ. But in all of these things, it's actually going the opposite way. It's actually building in them a steadfastness in Christ. Um, and there's there's amazing truth to be to be seen in this scripture. But I feel like up to who at this point in the sermon, we've missed so much of the ability to see that because we've talked about, again, 
good things, helpful information, but altogether, I think probably distracting from what we could have been looking at. Um, but anyway, just my two cents. If you uh, have an opinion on that, please leave it in the description below. Also, uh, if you don't want to cut quite, you know, put your stamp of, I'm not, you know, like, um, I agree with you. That's fine. I, I, you don't have to agree with me. You can wait till next week and we're going to cover uh, part two of Mark Driscoll. And we'll be looking at the second half of this sermon um, and seeing kind of where he takes it from here. Um, so I hope you join for us for that next week. If you want to uh, stay informed on that, make sure you click the subscribe button, the bell button, all of those things will notify you when that happens or just follow on Instagram. I always post a link on the stories there. Guys, thank you for watching, following, doing all the cool things that you do. I'll talk to you later.